therapy, Paul addresses a very serious issue in the life of the church. There may be no passage more crucial to the 21st century church than this passage. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, of whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Paul is writing to people that he loves. But he's also writing to people that he's concerned about because there is a problem drifting into this first century church. There are things that are coming up on the horizon that he says are dangerous to the church. And he uses this phrase, stand firm or stand fast. It is a military term. It implies opposition. It says that you and I have something pushing against us, trying to push us back, to knock us off guard, to take down our defenses, to overwhelm us and overcome us. And we see that every day in our family, in our culture, in the media, and even in the church. Now, he uses the term stand firm in a number of ways uh, in the New Testament. First of all, let me just go through these. Stand firm in the faith is found in 1 Corinthians 16, 13. We're to stand firm in the faith. Secondly, stand firm in freedom. Galatians 5, 1 tells us we're not to go back into the bondage of the law. We're to stand firm in the fellowship, Philippians 1, 27. We're to live in harmony and unity with one another. We're to stand firm in the family. We're to stand together, Philippians 4, 1, with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're to stand firm in the foundation, 2 Thessalonians 2, 15. Stay with the Word. And we are to stand firm in the fight, Ephesians 6, 11. Now, there were a number of heresies and philosophies that were floating uh, during this day that Paul was aware of and had to deal with and had to battle, quite honestly. One was the Gnostics. The Gnostics wanted to turn Christianity into an intellectual philosophy. That's the simplest way that I can define it. They wanted it to be all about the intellectual. The antinomian libertines wanted to distort the principle of liberty and say, you can do whatever you want to do, let's sin so that grace may abound. The Epicureans thought that the purpose of life was pleasure, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you may die. 
And there are Christians that live that way. There are Christians today who live by the Epicurean philosophy. They spend everything on themselves. Everything is about obtaining more and more and getting more and more. And they care very little about the cause of Christ around the world. They were the Judaizers who wanted to add Jewish tradition to the faith. They wanted you to become a Jew before you became a Christian. They were the legalists who wanted to add laws. The Pharisees had over 600 laws, and they wanted to add more laws and more regulations. Here's the problem. Vance Havner identified this problem in 1935. This is what he said. We are fighting a war with the most undisciplined, untrained, ill-organized army on the face of the earth, the church. We are to be God's army, but we're undisciplined, and we're untrained, and we're ill-equipped, and thus we're losing the battle for our culture and for our homes and, yes, even for the church. The Scripture tells us that we're supposed to resist, and it's easy for Christians to quit. The Scripture says that we're supposed to wrestle, and we are quick to cry uncle. The Scripture says that we are to fight the good fight, but we can't get out of the recliner and get back to church on Sunday night. The Scripture tells us that we're to press toward the mark, and we're always taking detours. God has some specific things to say to us about the things that are going to come against us, and they are inside the church. Paul is saying there are many who are walking who I've often told you. In other words, this is not the first time you've heard this. Paul had preached this sermon before. They had heard this message. Now he's writing it down to say, there are things that you've got to be on guard for. You have got to watch out for. You can't let this stuff get in you. And so the first thing he says is we need to recognize the possibility of self-indulgent religion. Self-indulgent religion. He says we are to follow his example, not theirs, not who, these people who have these other agendas. He says, walk according to the pattern. Now that little phrase, according to the pattern, means to strike an image on a blank piece of metal. It is a term used for making coins. So you take a, a blank, smooth piece of metal and you strike an image on it. It's also a word used for cutting out a dress pattern. Uh, garment pattern. You take something and you cut along the pattern. And Paul says, I've laid out a pattern for you on how you are supposed to live. Now, you need to live according to that pattern. You need to look at the image that I've put for you that Christ has given you, and you need to make yourself over into that image. You need to have that look about you. And, and so what he's talking about here is our character, how we live, who we are. On the inside, there are two dangers facing the church. One is wolves on the outside, and the other is false teachers on the inside, dressed in sheep's clothing, but they're wolves. Wolves on the outside that are trying to attack and undermine the church, and they're there. They're there right now. There are people that would love to strategize a way to close every church in America. And we know they're there. But the one that is the greatest danger to the church is the false teachers on the inside. 
those who are within the church who are wolves in sheep's clothing. There's a real truth in the fact that Satan is no longer fighting churches, he's joining them. And whole denominations have fallen prey to false teaching. And, and if we don't watch it, we will too. Never assume that because it's always been, it will always be. Because we are in a battle for the very heart and soul of what the church of Jesus Christ is supposed to look like and what it's supposed to be. He says, I've often told you, they pose as friends, but they are enemies. They pose as friends, but they're enemies. Look at what he says, whose God is their appetite. They live for sensual pleasure. Now there, Paul's not just talking about sensual pleasure as we would think about sensual pleasure. Paul is also talking about lusting after religious experiences. You see, you can be sensual and be in church. You can have soulish worship and sensual worship that stirs up in you emotions that are fleshly and are not honoring to God. And you can let your flesh and your emotions take over your worship. Does that make sense? Everybody understand where I'm going? Do I need to explain this anymore? I mean, you can just, let, you can just get lost in your emotions. Whose God is their appetite? I just want to feel something when I come today. Well, maybe God doesn't want you to feel something. Maybe God wants you to long for His presence. You see, it's not about how high can I get. Their God is their appetite. They're just trying to feed themselves. They're just trying to, to feed their flesh in their worship. They're, they're looking for the ecstatic feeling. And can I say in my humble and accurate opinion, which I highly respect, this is a first century message for the 21st century church. This describes a lot of what I see on religious television. And quite honestly, a lot of what I see in Christian concerts. And trust me, I own more Christian music and I've been to more concerts than everybody in this room combined. I've probably been to 700 Christian concerts in my life. So nobody's going to outdo me on going to concerts. And I can tell you, I'm not saying that from an outside observer who doesn't know. I'm saying that for somebody who's been behind the scenes, in the middle of it, and watching it. It has become our nature that all we want to do is somebody to pump us up. And that is not worship. That is just putting Christian words to a secular feeling and a fleshly feeling. You don't have to agree with me. When you get to heaven, you'll find out you're wrong and I'm right. <laughs> he says, many walk, not a few, not some here and there, but many walk, of whom I have often told you. You see, a counterfeit looks like it's real until you put it beside the real. And we have so much today that burdens me about what's happening in the church. And I am seeing more and more of this passage being truth in what's happening in the Christian culture in America today that it frightens me. 
style over substance, illustrations over exegesis. I, I mean, you, you got people that, you know, they're walking illustrations, but they never tell you what the Word of God says. Folks, listen, you need to discern. There's a difference between preaching the Word and using the Word occasionally to make it sound like it's biblical teaching. There's a big difference. Just because you quote a couple of verses of Scripture to add validity to what you say doesn't mean you've preached the Bible. It means you've just grabbed a verse. First of all, you came up with a sermon, and then you found a verse that applied to what you wanted to say. That's different than saying, this is what God says. You see, I can't run and hide when I preach through a book of the Bible. It's going to say what it's going to say, and verse 15 is going to be followed by verse 16, and I can't ignore those. I can't just say what makes everybody feel good. I'd like to get up and say, we're just going to do 16 messages on rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. I'm going to do my Gomer Pyle imitation. We're just going to do rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. But in the middle of rejoicing, there's a warning. Because if you don't heed the warning, you can't rejoice. Because you'll get sucked in by false teaching. So first thing they do is they presume on the grace of God. They presume on the grace of God. Grace does not mean we are free to sin. Grace means we are free not to sin. Turn just a few pages over to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. You see, self-indulgent religion minimizes sin, and it minimizes the standards of God. While you're turning there, I was watching PBS this afternoon and uh, watching a, a, an oldies concert thing that was on, and some of those people need to quit singing. But, uh, you know, Tony Orlando, he hadn't aged well. Tony Orlando said, it would be a sin not to have public television. And I thought, buddy, you just minimize sin. Big deal. Because we can do without public television. We don't have to have that. That's not a sin to be without public television. Now, it's a sin to do without Houston's and having a Hawaiian steak. That's different. But I wish they'd pay me to advertise for them. Romans 6.1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. I mean, Paul, the, the, the power behind that little phrase, may it never be. It's a, it's a Greek word, meganoito. And I can still remember my professor in college. He would get up and he would shake his head and stomp up and down and, and jump and beat his fist and say, God forbid. That's what Paul's saying. Paul is throwing a hissy fit. He says, should we sin so that grace may abound? No, never. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Verse 6, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Verse 11, even so consider yourselves to be what? Dead to sin. 
but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust, and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. The kind of religion that honors the Lord says, Lord, here I am. I am presenting myself to you as an instrument of righteousness. Not as an instrument of what I want, but an instrument of righteousness. Something in your hands that you can use. How do they presume on the grace of God? Well, let me just give you a couple of examples. The mainline denominations presume on the grace of God by becoming politically correct by ordaining homosexuals, by having gays in the ministry, by being expedient. One of our church members gave me an article this morning as he was leaving church, and there's a possibility that if this goes through, and I don't remember all the facts on it, so I'm just going to kind of put it together, but you can read it in Albany Herald Saturday. There's a possibility that no judge could ever be a member of a church because no judge would be able to be a member of any organization that discriminates because of sex or race. And so if a church says, we will not allow homosexuality in our church, no judge could be a member of a church. That's where our country's headed. And guess what? There are mainline denominations that agree that that would be the right thing to do because we need to love everybody. Listen, folks, I love everybody. I love the sinner, but I hate the sin. You know, it is a sin, and there are no Christian homosexuals. The Bible says you were, not you are, and unless you can go back and get Paul to change his language under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, there are none. We are converted out of that lifestyle just like somebody is converted out of a lifestyle of prostitution. They can be converted out of a lifestyle of homosexuality. I had a meal with somebody two weeks ago that's converted out of homosexuality. He's married. He's got a baby. Works in a Christian ministry. He's converted, changed out of a lifestyle of homosexuality. Don't tell me you can't change. I can give you examples where you can. God sets us free from the power of sin and death. That's a lie of the devil. The charismatics can do it by saying, well, we're going to start emphasizing this, or we're going to start emphasizing that. And and it's always, there's a new catch word. By the way, I I think there's a meeting somewhere where there's a catch word that, that everybody picks up for the year. A few years ago, it's, the anointing. Do you have the anointing? And, and you watch everybody, and you just see, they're just like they're reading off each other's notes. You know, do, do you have the anointing? Well, no, nobody, nobody talked about that, and then all of a sudden that word came up. Well, guess what? If you heal the lame, then sooner or later you've got to heal something else, and then sooner or later you've got to say, I'm going to raise somebody from the dead, which we've had at least two on television say they were. Now, for the life of me, I hadn't seen that yet. Now, if they do it, I might listen to them. But I want them to be dead, dead. <laughs> I don't want them to be, looks like they're dead. I mean, I want them dead, dead. I want them laid out. I want to thump them in the forehead and say, here, can you feel that? 
And then I want them to say, rise and be healed. And I want them to get up and walk. Listen, Jesus did that. The apostles did that. But there's no record that anybody's done that Amen. since that time. Now, there have been healings, but raising from the dead, that's going a little far. But just think how much money you could take in a month if you could do that. I'm not going to camp there anymore. Evangelicals and Baptist churches have started offering everything in the world but the Word of God. I played golf with Bill Breland this past week, and we were playing a Jack Nicholas golf course. It's a beautiful golf course, and we just got to talking about life and down in the south part of Florida, and it's, it's, it's a different world. We, we were in Palm Beach staying in somebody's house that we could, could have not afforded to stay in, and, and so we were just staying in this little place, and Bill and I went and, and played golf, and Bill said, can I just tell you the condition of the churches here? So we just talked about what's church like in South Florida. He said, there's not a week that goes by that somebody doesn't ask me if I know of a church that's preaching the Word. He said, we are dying for the Word of God. We've got pageants and programs, and we got events and concerts. We've got everything in the world but the preaching of the Word of God. We have nobody in this entire area that is preaching unapologetically the Bible. He said, they got every sideshow and dog and pony show in the world coming in, but nobody's sitting down and saying, this is what God says. And he said, there is a hunger for the Word of God in South Florida. And by the way, I could look out from where we were staying, and I could see a huge Baptist church right across the intercoastal waterway. They spend $750,000 a year on their pageant. And they've never built a building in the last 20 years because they're not growing by doing pageants. They will grow when they start preaching the Word of God. Amen. Simple as that. Not only do they misuse grace, they have a sensual view of religion whose God is their appetite. We've already talked about that. But let me just ask you to write Romans 16, 18 by there. Uh, For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Jesus Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. It's a powerful verse. By smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. There is a word that has creeped into Christian terminology that bugs me. There are no, there, nobody's a preacher anymore. They're communicators. Okay? They're communicators. So... Here's the difference, okay? This is the difference. Hey, dude. What's going on? I want to talk to you all about resting in the Lord. Now, personally, when I have my personal trainer work with me, I like to go home and take a good shower, sit in a hot tub, and then rest for a while. And that's what resting in the Lord is about. Try that, won't you? Get your personal trainer and do something about yourself. Take care of your physical body. After all, we all want to live forever, 
And we, want to, we don't want to go to heaven and get a perfect body. We just want to have a perfect body down here. So get yourself a trainer. Eat right. Eat well. Take your vitamins and chill out, dude. It'll be a great time for you. God will bless you for doing that. That's a communicator. And I want to tell you, that those churches can't get a crowd this size back on Sunday nights. They got 10,000 on Sunday morning and nobody to come back on Sunday nights because there's no commitment. Folks, listen. The next step is we won't even have church on Sunday morning because we'll just all get it over the Internet. And so we won't have to relate to anybody. We won't have to be accountable to anybody. We won't have to rub shoulders with anybody. The greatest smack of ego that I have seen lately is churches that are starting satellites where they get a live band, but you get the privilege of hearing the pastor at the home church preach to you by satellite while he's live, the band's live, and they've got it all timed out. And now we get to sit in a room with a pastor we'll never get to meet and watch him preach and ask him to give us money so that we can experience listening to him. Now, folks, it's one thing to be on TV. It's another thing to think I'm so good that you need to go listen to a live band but watch me on Memorex. That doesn't get it for me. I mean, that just doesn't get it. I don't, I don't get it. I'm not going to get it. I don't want to get it. Are we okay? I mean, can, can you just imagine? Well, the pastor's not here this week, but for the next 12 weeks, he'll be preaching a series. If you turn your attention to the IMAGs, where is the ministry and the interaction in that? Where is the knowing the faces of the people that you're talking to? Because, by the way, I can preach and we can be on television, but I have no clue what's going on in the lives of other people who watch us in other places. I can at least have my finger on the pulse of what's happening here. And my preaching is not so much for them, it's for us, and they get to listen in. That's a whole different philosophy. You know, I served with a pastor that would always do this. Oh, this is the light that's on. Is this the camera? That's the camera and so on. And then he would watch, and the light would move, and he'd turn it up. And he looked like, you know, you thought he was talking to the crowd, but he's talking to the camera because he never takes his eyes off the camera because he's always watching the camera. I'm going to go here now. And so he walks over here, and he does this because he's, he cares about you. Well, he's talking right over the heads of his people, and you're going, hey, I'm here. Hello. Hello. I'm right here. Some people go to church to get pumped up. Some people go to church to get fired up. And I worry about that. I want to know that people come to church because they love God. Because they just got a simple love to be with God's people. I mean, I, I don't check to see what's going on to find out if I'm going to come. I'm just going to come. I'm just going to go. Other people are always looking for something new. What's the newest book? What's the newest tape? What's the newest conference? What's the newest CD? Some people are into the prosperity gospel. 
And by the way, the prosperity gospel is nothing more than a baptized eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you will die philosophy. It's you'll get it all here. Folks, can I tell you, I don't want to get it all here. I'm willing to wait till heaven to get the rewards. I don't have to get everything here. I'm grateful for what I get here, but I don't believe that God's got to give me everything now for me to be happy because I would rather be happy in eternity with the whole presence of God and everything that He has designed for me since the beginning of time. I'd rather have that than to get it all here and have a little shack in the corner when I get to heaven because I got my reward on earth. So, he says, they're self-serving. They are enemies of the cross. James 4, 4 says, friendship with the world is enmity with God. Let's talk about what the enemies of the cross are. Number one, they are those who teach the Bible has errors. That the Bible has errors, that it has mistakes, that it's not inerrant. God spoke and he did not stutter. The Bible is true from Genesis to Revelation, and I'm pretty sure about the maps. I'm even slightly convinced that the genuine leather is inspired. The Bible does not contain errors. And every time that people think they've found errors, somebody has come up to show that what the Bible says, the Bible's not a science book, but when it speaks to science, it's accurate. The Bible's not a history book, but when it speaks to history, it's accurate. And people a lot smarter than me have been able to prove the absolute sufficiency and inerrancy of Scripture. Number two, enemies are those who expound legalism as truth and deny the grace of God. Number three, enemies are those who teach license. Live like you want to. You're saved. Jude 4 says, For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Number four, enemies are those who promote experiences instead of the blood, the cross, and repentance as essential. Whose end is destruction. Philip says these men are headed for utter destruction. The message says easy street is a dead-end street. Whose glory is in their shame. They, they justify their behavior. They, they should be ashamed of their behavior, but they're not. It used to be that glorying in shame was the role of the pornographers and certain elements of Hollywood and certain television shows. But now glorying in shame has become a part of the church. Someone dropped an article by my office out of the Atlanta Constitution with a church that's having a Bible study at Hooters. A lot of men signed up for that class. I tell you, there's one reason to have a Bible study at Hooters. Put all women in there at that Bible study and let them know to those young ladies, you don't have to do this with your body to be loved. That's the only Bible study anybody ought to have, and you shouldn't have one there. That's like the guy that was pastor at Ada before me. He used to go into bars a couple of times a week because he said, I want to know what the guys at the bar are thinking. 
I'll tell you what they're thinking. Give me another shot glass. I don't have to go sit at a bar with an alcoholic to find out what an alcoholic's thinking. I don't have to eat pig slop to know what a pig eats. And I don't have to dance with folks to find out what moves them. I mean, you don't have to get dirty in this world. Jesus walked through this world undefiled. And when I read that article, I just, you know, I just laughed. I thought, you know, what are we going to do next? I'm waiting for a church in Florida or a church somewhere on I-75, the We Bear All Bible Study. It could happen. That's frightening, isn't it? It's embarrassing that the church thinks that if we become like the world, we'll reach the world. The world already knows what they've got. They don't know what we have. And we will reach the world by telling the world we have something different, not by becoming like them. Isaiah 5, 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Paul says these people are inside the church. We need to watch them. We need to mark them out. Secondly, remember who we are and what's ahead. And I'm going to go through these last parts very quickly. We are citizens of heaven, first of all. That means we evaluate life not on terms of here and now, but on terms of eternity. We have distinctiveness in the way we live because we are citizens of earth and citizens of heaven. I can say no thanks to a lot that the world has to offer because I've already got something better. Secondly, we have a Savior who is coming back. We eagerly await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Titus 2.13 says, Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The great event in the Roman colonies was when the emperor would come for a visit. When he would, coins would be struck and highways would be rebuilt and great celebrations would be planned because the emperor was coming. Paul says, our emperor is coming. Our king is coming. And we live with anticipation that one day he's going to split the sky and he's going to take us to be with him. And so we live in light of his coming. Now, the picture here is of a deliverer or a liberator, the, the emperor coming to deliver his people who have been in captivity. We've been dropped behind enemy lines. We are in enemy territory. We are called to be soldiers of the cross in a world that hates the cross and hates the blood and hates the message of the church. And I, I would just say to you, I wouldn't want to be retreating when Jesus comes back. I wouldn't want to be a Christian, and I wouldn't want to be in a church that was ashamed to boldly proclaim who we are and what we believe if Jesus were to come back. Thirdly and finally, rejoice in the power made available, Philippians 3.21, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to himself. Colossians says we are to walk in him. We are to take Christ as our boundary. That we never have to go outside of Christ 
to have our needs met. That Christ is all-sufficient. That He is sovereign over our lives. And He is prepared to do for us anything we need to accomplish His will and His purpose in and through our lives. So we're to walk in Him. We're to stand firm. We're to take Christ as our boundary. Now, now let me tell you what, just give you a, a simple illustration of what that means. When Terry was eight months pregnant, we moved to Texas. We, we flew the dog. I made Terry ride with me. I hate that dog. <laughs> and so we're on our way to Texas. We have to find a gynecologist. We have to find, we have to find everything, every doctor, everything. And so, three and a half weeks after we're there, Haley's born. Now, my secretary showed up with a Texas birth certificate that we still have. And she said, you need to know that Haley will always be a Texan. She can't get away from it. She was born in the confines of the state of Texas, within the borders of Texas. And she has been and she will be always a Texan. Terry was born in Georgia. Aaron was born in Georgia. They will always be Georgians. I was born in Mississippi. So we have two Georgia peaches one Texas rose, and one Mississippi mud in my house. <laughs> and that's the way it'll always be. I just want to remind you, when I figured out that there was someplace other than Mississippi, I did leave. <laughs> and I don't go back. I cross the line and I get the shimmies. I mean, I just, it just goes all over me. Let me give you another quick illustration. Take your Bible tonight and look through it, and in the English translation of the Greek and Hebrew New Testament and the Aramaic New Testament, you will find that everything God has to say to you is contained in 26 letters of the alphabet, which means you never have to get beyond your ABCs to find out what God wants you to know. Everything God needs you to know is contained in 26 letters of the alphabet. All you need for living the Christian life is contained in the pages of that book you hold in your hand. And it didn't take, God didn't say, you know what, that's not enough letters. I'm going to have to add some letters so that I can communicate with these people. No, you got it all right there in 26 letters. And so we're to stand firm because God's made a power available to us. We're to walk in Him. Because in walking in Him and in standing firm and in watching out, we will not be caught off guard. We will not be sucked in by people who almost say what the Bible says but don't say it. Who almost tell you what God wants you to do, but they back off of it for fear that you might be offended. Don't ever, ever... Be afraid of the truth. Be afraid of somebody who tells you what you want to hear, not what you need to hear.
because the person that tells a child what they want to hear and not what they need to hear raises a spoiled child. And the church that tells people what they want to hear and not what they need to hear raises deceived children who think they have a greater relationship with God than they really do because what they have is a relationship with God in their image, not in His image. Father, we come to the end of this hour and we ask You to help us to keep our guard up, to watch our steps, to renew our minds, and to hold fast to the Word of Truth. I'm just going to ask Heather to play for a moment and for us to be silent before the Lord tonight for a few minutes before we leave and go to the reception. I haven't told you anything that I haven't said before. I've often told you this. And you may interpret some of what I said tonight as personal frustration or even jealousy. But far from that, it is great fear that any person that I've been given responsibility to be shepherd over would be deceived and fall into something that is not consistent with the Word of God. Like Paul, it is my desire to present every man complete, not just a few, but to stand before God one day and say, God, we did everything we understood to do to raise the standard high and to not lower the bar, to not compromise your word. But we did what we had to do and needed to do so that people might know the truth because Jesus said, the truth sets us free. Feeling good doesn't set us free. Hearing what we want to hear doesn't set us free. Church the way I like it doesn't set me free. Making me happy doesn't set me free. It's the truth that sets me free. And the truth is hard because the truth is a two-edged sword and it cuts into us and shows us where things are inside of us that don't need to be there and does spiritual surgery on us. And the Holy Spirit quickens and empowers that sword it is the book that we read where the author is present with us as we read to say to our hearts, this you need to change, this you need to adjust, this you need to continue. Over 15 years, I've seen people come and go. I've seen folks drop out and quit. I've seen people fall for error. And my fear for every believer is that we would somehow not keep our hands to the plow 
and not stay focused on what God wants us to do. If I love God, I love the truth. Because it's His Word to my heart to tell me how I'm supposed to live.